Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. Yeah, we're going to uh, spend um, this morning going through um, Daniel 7. I didn't know that your kids were going through Daniel and were at Daniel 7. So we thank God um, that when your kids come to tell you all about um, what they learnt, you'll be able to like, I also learnt that. What a great time. Um, so just a, one thing you need to know about me is that I really like a good disaster movie. Um, so if you don't know what they are, uh, these are movies that detail what the world would look like if something global and cosmic happens. So I don't know if you know this one, but there's the one where the world suddenly goes really cold and people have to escape out of New York. I don't know if you remember that one. Or you might remember the movie 2012 that depicted what it was supposed to look like, uh, supposed to happen in that year of 2012. All these movies, while enjoyable to watch these big set pieces and things blowing up, I wonder how I would cope in the middle of these events. What would I do and how would I be able to make an impact at all? When we consider world events on a global scale, we can feel pretty helpless and the future can seem bleak. Even in our world today, it can feel the same way bleak and helpless. We see pandemics, wars, tumultuous politics, and we can often wonder if someone is guiding the ship. Who is in control? Reality can sometimes feel like a disaster movie, sometimes worse than a disaster movie because we're really in it. So when we read through Daniel 7, it can feel the same way. There is a sense of powerlessness to change what is going to happen as Daniel's vision depicts events on a cosmic scale. And as you might have found out as we go through the passage, as we watch that video, it's also really confusing. But I hope that as we dig deeper into this chapter, that we hope for the future and although big world events happen, we can trust in something greater than ourselves. We can take great comfort in this passage as it draws our eyes from our present circumstances, and look at who is really in control. Uh, Before we go any further, I'd love to pray for us in this passage. Uh, Lord, Heavenly Father, as we uh, go through Daniel 7 and just uh, find out your great plans and future for our world and us, we just pray that we will find uh, great hope and trust in you and in your Son, Jesus. May um, this passage and the words from uh, the Bible just um, be open to us and open to our ears, Lord. May your spirit be working within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know how much you know about the book of Daniel, uh, but it's set in the time of Israel's exile, and this is really important for us to know about the passage So if you're unfamiliar with the history of Israel, the term term, uh, exile or exilic refers to the period in Israel's history 
in which the Babylonian Empire, big empire, had sieged Jerusalem and the people of Israel were dispersed um, amongst the Babylonian Empire. So this time period was about 70 years. And during this time, Daniel with some other Jewish upper class were taken to Babylon to work for the king. This is where the book of Daniel was set and this book deals with how to live as God's people in a foreign land. So for example, how does Daniel and his friends live in a land that worship other gods or even their leaders? How does Daniel observe God's commands when others around him do not? So the book of Daniel, it deals with these problems and many others, all the while showing that even though Israel is dispersed, God still cares for his people. So this is the book that we'll be looking at this morning and I hope already we can see the applicability that the book has for those who live as God's people. So we have four points for the talk today. The first is the four beasts, the ancient of days, the son of man and the kingdom of the most high. So our first point, four beasts. So this chapter begins with Daniel having a dream and the first thing to note is the dream does not follow chronologically in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7 we go back in time during the first year of King Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus, before Babylon's fall. We're entering into a new part of the book of Daniel from narrative to apocalyptic prophecy, which is a fancy word for a genre concerned with revealing how God will bring about his kingdom through world history. Its main characteristics is its language which is highly stylized, with symbols and images used to convey its meaning. That's why it can be often hard to understand and know the meaning. So what does Daniel see in his vision? Well, in his vision he sees four beasts. He sees a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast that was indescribable. But like not in a cute baby Yoda way, but in a terrifying way. We see that even the beasts that are describable aren't normal, with some having extra heads or wings or ribs in its mouth. These beasts are just downright weird. But what are these beasts? Well, in verse 17, we are told they are four kings that will arise from the earth. These beasts are real historical kings, real people. The question I'm sure you all are wondering is, well, who are they? Well, the first beast is described as a lion with the wings of an eagle, and it represents Babylon. You can actually see a sculpture of the Lion of Babylon in Iraq, built during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon is our first great empire, which declared its independence from the Assyrians in 626 BC and expanded its borders from east of the Tigris into Turkey and even Egypt. As we've already kind of heard, Babylon was instrumental in Israel's history being the nation that ultimately destroyed Jerusalem and sent the Israelites into exile. After Nebuchadnezzar II, they didn't survive long, leading to our second empire. The second empire is a bear who was raised on one side. This refers to the Medo-Persian Empire, where the Persian Empire was the strongest side in the alliance, 
eventually overtaking the Medes. So we might remember the Persian Empire from the movie 300, but in the Bible the Persians are viewed positively and also with less abs. But they end the exile and allow the remnant of Israel to return to Jerusalem to rebuild it. They're also a fierce empire that continually threatened Greece, which brings us to our third empire, which is represented by a leopard. So the Greek empire, they were able to take over the Persian empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great in only 10 years. After his death, his empire was divided into four kingdoms. The Greek empire controlled Israel and during the time between the Old and New Testament, one man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, pillaged the temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig in the temple to his god Zeus. The Greek empire was then succeeded by the Roman empire represented by the indescribable creature. The Roman empire was vast and had a long-lasting effect on culture, politics and history. So what can we learn from these verses? Why did I have to teach you all about this history and does it actually mean anything? Well, firstly, the kings are given their authority. The first beast is lifted from the ground and given the mind of a human. The second beast is told to get up and fill and, and eat your fill of flesh. And the third beast is given the authority to rule. It shows us that God gives nations their authority. Amid these terrifying nations, it is God who is in control. This is very evident with the fourth nation, and in particular, the small horn. Daniel is extremely interested in the fourth beast because of how it will impact the world and God's people. In verse 23, we're told that this kingdom will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. This is a scary image and it kind of reflects the Roman Empire, which was a ruthless military empire, conquering and brutally murdering its foes. But what is of most interest is this small horn, which puts down three horns. This small horn, he speaks boastfully against God and oppresses God's people. There is not a consensus of who the small horn is, and actually, I don't, actually, I don't think that's the purpose of the passage. No, but anyway, many see it as that guy, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, because of how he pillaged Jerusalem. Still, some view it as someone in the future who has not come. But what is clear is that whoever this person is, he seeks to oppress those who follow God, and he boastfully speaks of himself, puffing himself up. He places himself on par with God in his own eyes. There is a long list of people who have done the same and will continue to do it. So we have that Antiochus IV fellow who oppressed the Israelites. Then during the Roman Empire, Christians were persecuted by Nero, Diocletian to name just a few. Then even in the 20th century, Many Christians were persecuted under communism. And then even now, Christians are persecuted in other nations like China, North Korea and Syria. Whoever the small horn is, he fits the type of kingdoms and leaders that go against God. 
It's the human condition to rebel against God and leaders are not immune from this. Some unwittingly do it and some knowingly seek to destroy God's people. This is not to make us fearful of governments or leaders, but to point to the reality of following Christ. However, what we see from these four kingdoms is that God is still in control. He is the one who gives authority and takes it away. We may be unsure of how God is operating in the world in terms of politics or world events, but this first part of Daniel 7, even though it depicts these brutal beasts, reassures us that God is in control. After the four beasts are described, our focus is placed on a throne. We enter a new scene that is reminiscent of a courtroom, and from his throne, this king would elicit judgments on people. And we introduce to the Ancient of Days, God the King. In these three verses, we learn about who God is as a ruler. One, he is called the Ancient of Days. God is before time. This is the opposite of the four kingdoms who were given their reign by God and only existed for a short amount of time. But God and his kingdom and rule are long before other human rulers and will last long after every ruler. Point number two, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His clothing resembles his holiness and purity. It is only God who can adequately judge sin because he is morally pure and his hair reflects his eternal nature and age. Three, God's throne and his wheels were flaming with fire. You might be thinking, what an odd description of a throne. Usually when we think of thrones, they don't have wheels. But in the ancient Near East, kings are described as sitting on chariot thrones. And God is depicted as being on the same thing. The fire depicts God's wrath and judgment. God is judging the wicked and his fire goes out from his throne. As God rules over his kingdom, he is in the judgment of wicked people and especially the fourth kingdom. So these descriptions show us that God is the high king of all the earth who is pure and eternal and he pours out his judgment on the wicked. There is nothing more comforting than knowing this about God. I think it it destroys the thought that the world has no judge or a deus thinking of God where he creates the world and then leaves it to his own devices. The Bible is clear that there is a God who deals justly and wisely with his creation. God justly deals with the wicked and in a world which has injustice and wickedness. This is something to hold on to. Then in verse 11, we go back to the fourth beast. While we see the picture of God on his throne, the fourth king is speaking boastfully, oppressing God's people. And God's response demonstrates his power and strength. We can see it's not even a contest. When God deals with this wicked foe, he deals completely. If you know of the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, 
Then it's kind of like when Aragorn, the rightful king of Gondor, arrives with the ghosts of the battle at Minas Tirith. There is no contest and the enemy is quickly wiped away. Or in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan appears at the battle with the white witch and easily defeats her. The opponent is no match. So it is in this scene. The wicked are no match for God. So we learn from this passage that God deals justly with the wicked. You might feel that injustice has happened to you or someone you know. Well, we know that God deals justly and wisely. In a world in which wicked things happen daily, we are confident that God is judging and knowing that God hates wickedness, we seek justice for those who have been oppressed. God's justice might not happen swiftly or even when we are alive, but God will ultimately judge wickedness in a final way. After the fourth, king's, fourth kingdom's destruction, we're introduced to another person. This person is described as one like a son of man. Now, by using the word like, Daniel is using it as symbolism. This person going up on a cloud is like a son of man, like a human. Compare this with the human kings who are like beasts. I think, and so do most commentators, that this person is divine. This is demonstrated in the next line, that he, that he the uh, son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. This son of man is more than a man. He goes from, heaven to earth, from earth to heaven on a cloud and then approaches the Ancient of Days, God himself. For context, to understand how profound this is, in Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 to 20, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Humans, that's us, cannot see God face to face. But this son of man can. This, the son of man is different. His divinity is on display. So why is this son of man important? Well, in verse 14 we are told that he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This son of man is the ruler of God's kingdom. He is the king. He differs from the previous kingdoms. His lasts forever and every nation and all peoples will worship him. We see, the, we see the picture of complete reign by God and a bringing of all people to him. This son of man is really important. So who is this son of man? Here's what it says in Mark chapter 14, 61 to 62. Again, the high priest asked him, that's Jesus, 
Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the Son of Man. He is the one who goes to God on a cloud and gains the kingdom. It is not some speculation, but Jesus' own words that he is this divine king. Then in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, we see this image of Jesus, our king. This is what it means that Jesus is king. It reads, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the Philippians passage, we discover how Jesus is exalted. It is through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And he's not just praised, but he's worshipped. The picture that this passage uses is that everyone bows towards Jesus. Not just every human, but everything. All of creation acknowledges Jesus' lordship. Compare this to the four earthly kingdoms. They might have been great and powerful, but they were not worshipped by everything, and eventually their kingdoms diminished. Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord of the kingdom right now. What is clear in this passage is its concern with God's kingdom. So we're going to turn our attention to what this passage can tell us about his kingdom. Point number one, God plans to build his kingdom. God does not continually allow the kingdoms of humanity to continue in their rebellion against him. We see this in how he deals with the four beasts. And and as as we read verse 14, God has a plan that his kingdom will be installed over all creation. God has a plan for his kingdom. Point number two, Jesus himself is given the authority over this kingdom now. He's not just given the authority in the future. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he was given authority over his kingdom. Therefore, we do not expect a future reality, but a present reality that Jesus is the king of a very real kingdom now. Number three, for believers, it will also be tough at times. We learn in verse 21 and in verse 25 that the saints, those who are a part of God's kingdom, will be oppressed. This does not mean that God has left us or the kingdom is not established, but that believing in God will be difficult. But God is sovereign and good. He is a just God and his kingdom will prevail. Number four, this kingdom will be fully revealed in the future. 
You might have noticed, but we live in a pretty broken world, in one marred and damaged by sin. It's a, it's a reality. But this does not mean that God is not in control or his kingdom is not here. But we look forward expectantly, expectantly to when it is fully realised. So I think a good example in recent years has been in universities. So, as you know, I work with a Christian organisation called AFES. And we work alongside Christian university groups to present students mature in Christ. And as I have spoken to many students, I get the sense that many had different expectations over the last two years. Many who started their university courses in 2020, well, they had the expectation of face-to-face classes. But no bueno, that wasn't what happened. They were all online. They were stuck behind a computer screen. This was not ideal, not a true representation of university learning. But they still had online classes. They still learnt some things. It was difficult, but most of them knew that in the future they would be back to face to face and many and all are now back on campus. This is true in some sense to God's kingdom. It is very real now and holds some very real promises. But it pales in comparison to how it will be in the future. We expectantly look forward to when God's kingdom will be fully established. This is what Revelation has to say in chapter 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he dwelt with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is what we strive for. This is what we look forward to when God is dwelling with us when Jesus returns. So at the beginning of the talk, we spoke about disaster movies and how they can make us feel helpless. How looking at the future, we can seem insignificant. Well, Daniel seems to agree with this at the end, doesn't he? Because at the end of the vision, he is troubled and his face turns pale. But although we may feel scared about the future, about what may happen, I hope we can all see the immense hope in this chapter and the immense hope we find in Jesus. God's sovereignty in world events has an end point in the consummation and full realisation of his kingdom. World history is not meandering along, but God is progressing it forward where his kingdom is established and Jesus is king. The question that must be answered of us is what is our response? What will our response be to the news that Jesus has triumphed and established his kingdom on earth? Will we worship him and follow him? Will we bow down to our king or will we rebel? Let me pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you are on your throne, that you 
uh, sovereign over our world, however broken, um, however bad it can be. We thank you so much that you have actually provided a way to care for your creation and to fix it through your son, Jesus. We just pray that we will put our ultimate trust and hope in our King, Jesus. Just help us do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.